I wanted more than five minutes with the patient. I wanted half an hour or an hour or two hours if it was a new patient or a family that had significant struggles that we needed to navigate through and get to know one another. So that was just not possible in the traditional system. You're listening to the LG Free Hustle, the podcast that highlights creators, founders, administrators, managers, owners, and innovators of allergy free brands, businesses, and services. I am your host, Nicole Farkason. Let's get into the show. Hi, James, and hi, Nikayla. How are you? Hello, we're doing well. All right. I am good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. All right. Introduce yourself a little bit. Tell people who you are. Sure. My name is Nikayla Schroeder. I'm an allergist, and I grew up in Wisconsin, and always knew I wanted to be a doctor, but also had a lot of other things I wanted to do and explored. So I actually went to college for engineering at MIT and did my master's there as well, but still always wanted to find myself, you know, called back to the medical profession. So went to medical school after that in Wisconsin and then did a pediatrics residency at UVA in Charlottesville, Virginia, and chose to stay on and do an allergy fellowship there as well. So that's kind of the path that I took to eventually going a quite different route within the allergy field and learning about something called sublingual immunotherapy, which can treat environmental and food allergies, all ages, and it's just a wonderful tool to use that is not used very commonly in our field right now, unfortunately. So we decided, James and I decided to open our own clinic and do our best to put this option on the table and make it available for anyone who it can help. And then my background is a little unique. It's it's a little different than Nikila's. I graduated, well, I went to college out of high school and uh, decided that wasn't the route for me. So I ended up going into the Marine Corps and I was in the Marine Corps for eight years. I became a police officer for several years after that. And that's when I met Nikila when she was in med school in Madison, Wisconsin. She was moving to Charlottesville for her residency and fellowship. So I moved out there with her. And instead of becoming a police officer out there, there's multiple reasons why that is. I decided to go back to school because I never finished my degree. And then I got a business degree from UVA. When we moved back to Wisconsin, when she started at her clinic, private practice clinic there, I worked in digital marketing and kind of built websites and other kind of back-end stuff for companies. And then we had discussed talking about starting an allergy clinic for a long time while she was in private practice and different ways that we could optimize it and do things that would help patients out from our perspective and, and from what she had seen working in private practice using sublingual immunotherapy and some of the other things that she saw there. And when when she was working there, 
it, there wasn't a long-term plan to stay there because of some other factors. And we <laughs> kind of got uh, propelled forward, fast forward <laughs> to starting a clinic and, and making it a reality a lot sooner than we thought. So it was a dream for a long time. We thought we would do it later on in life. We had gotten married. We had had two young children. So opening a clinic was not, you know, on our direct schedule at the time, <laughs> but we, we decided it was the right time to do it. So yeah, so that I jumped in the healthcare mm-hmm. field with Nikila and I immediately was immersed in the allergy world and trying to figure out, you know, what everything means because at that point it was all foreign to me other than, you know, some cursory conversations I'd had with her about things that she's experienced. But yeah, it was all, I didn't even know what IgE was at the beginning of this. Uh, and now it's, you know, kind of common knowledge for the allergy field in general. So it's that, that's my background. Do you have any illness complications? And did that lead to letting you have that clinic? I have allergies. I'm an allergic person myself and James actually does not. Um, So it's kind of nice to have both perspectives available to patients within the clinic. So I walked the walk of, of a lot of allergic illness starting in my childhood I, I didn't know I had allergies when I was a child, but I, I certainly did. In hindsight, thought I was getting sick with colds, you know, every year at the same time, <laughs> same seasons. They started turning into sinus infections. I had a lot of trouble with that, was on a lot of antibiotics to try to help me be able to breathe, had severe eczema, but didn't know at the time that's what I had. Started to have trouble with some foods which later on, as I became an allergist, I, I realized that I was having trouble with foods that cross-reacted with certain pollens. And I even had a, a time period where I had some respiratory issues and, and probably a short bout with asthma. So wound up pretty sick in my early adulthood with, with all of these things, kind of snowballing on top of each other. And the added college and med school stress, the lack of sleep, things like that. So I wound up having sinus surgery. I remember when I met her, she was on Allegra every single day day, and she would come off of it for a week. And during that week, at the end of the week, she would have to go back on Allegra every day because Mm -hmm. she would start getting eczema under her eyes and in the creases of her legs and arms and stuff like that. So I do remember that. Yeah, I had to take school pictures. I remember with like swollen eyes from my dust mite allergy because I had no idea. So I was sleeping in a pillow full of dust mite and swelling up my face. So yeah, as an adult, you know, all those kind of health issues in the allergic realm kind of gave me a background that I think has served me well as an allergist to have walked that walk a bit. I also eventually started taking the treatment that I offer now. So I've also walked the walk with incorporating that form of immunotherapy into my life, seeing the results from it and, and learning the, you know, the balance from it. So it's, it's given me a good perspective. It's actually not why I became an allergist, oddly enough. <laughs> it had nothing to do with why I chose in the long run to become an allergist, but it certainly has helped <laughs> and when, when that became my life plan. so. And for me, like she said, I don't have any allergies at all, but 
from my experiences watching her and then learning about allergies, it, it helps to have the perspective of somebody from my point of view. So when we built this clinic, it, it helps guide, guide us on how to approach it for, you know, like family members who are put in a situation where they have kids or spouses or whatever, siblings that have allergies and the other one doesn't, then I can share kind of my perspective, you know, with Nikila mm-hmm. uh, on being the other side which is a good perspective to have as well. Yeah, it's a good balance. Now, tell me a little bit more about allergenity health. Sure. So allergenity health is our clinic. It's in Charlotte, North Carolina. We came up with the name. I think the name is a good representation of what our clinic's about. And we, we put a lot of thought into our name, um, even though we were advised to not use this name because it's unique and it's a little bit difficult to pronounce at first, potentially. We came up with this name because we wanted a clinic to help those who suffer from allergies in many different shapes and forms, and a clinic that provided genuine caring and ingenuity in the way that we approach each person's personal story and personal allergy history and path. So, so we kind of, with those concepts of being people who, who truly open in this, open this clinic because we genuinely care. That's, you know, there's a lot easier paths that we could have taken, but this really felt like something we needed and wanted to do for patients with allergies. So we wanted to combine that concept with the concept of using creativity along with science to really think about the best treatment path or the best options for a patient. So that's where we came up with our name, Allergenuity. And I think James mentioned a little bit, you know, this, this all kind of grew out of, started with me in fellowship, my allergy training, you know, learning the, learning the tools about the science of the immune system, learning the tools we had to treat patients. And I just, I wasn't satisfied at the end. I I felt like things were missing in terms of trying to find options that patients actually desired. Spend a lot of time with my patients and I listen. And what patients usually say is, you know, everybody wants a cure and wants a cure yesterday, but that's not possible, obviously, with the immune system, at least not at this point. And so with Aside from that, what people generally often say is they would love for something that improves their quality of life significantly, a treatment that improves their quality of life with minimal risk, with minimal invasiveness to their body or their lifestyle. And that just opens doors for them to feel like they can enjoy things a lot better than they can, whether that's being outside from environmental allergies or being able to visit friends and family who have certain pets that they're allergic to, um, eating certain foods. Yeah. Eating certain foods um, or just being able to eat at restaurants or friends' houses without significant fear, or as James just mentioned, the psychological component of having allergies and having it feel so isolating at times. For the family members too. Yeah, for the for the patient who has allergies and for family members trying to care for this for their family member with allergies. So, you know, time and time again, that's what I would hear when I would first, you know, just kind of sit back and listen to patients before I jumped in with my part. 
And the treatment options we we were being taught in our fellowship seemed useful, but didn't really capture all of that. Um, medicines are medicines. They have benefits, but they also have side effects. Some you can use long-term, some you can use short-term, but you have to weigh out all the pros and cons. And medicines aren't really changing your immune system or intervening to make your body any more tolerant of things that it's allergic to. So then you have immunotherapy. And when I was in fellowship, the main form of immunotherapy we were taught about is allergy shots. And while certainly that helps many people, it's also very invasive. Many, most people don't want to get injections unless they absolutely have to. It takes a lot of time in the doctor's office, frequent appointments for many years, and of course has risks. People do have anaphylaxis from the shots, and many people have local reactions or it can trigger asthma and things like that. It also could only be used for environmental allergies, could not be used in young children. We had to be very careful if we were deciding whether or not to use it for someone with severe asthma that was uncontrolled, severe eczema. So there were lots of restrictions on it as well. And it seems like immunotherapy in general is a very useful tool, but we were so restricted because of its the allergy shot methods risks that we could only use it in a small subset of patients. Of course, we could not use it with food allergy. So at that time, oral immunotherapy was, was not really a main thing. It was not taught in our training program, certainly, but it was starting to be studied. And so I learned about that. And of course, also has many good uses, but has a lot of the same risks as allergy shots. Um, anaphylaxis is certainly a risk also has some risks of eosinophilic esophagitis, GI problems, other things, and can be for some people very invasive in their lifestyle. It's not an injection, but requires rest periods, which can be difficult for certain families, loading, carb loading and other things or certain foods. And some families have restrictions with things like that. So it just, um, you know, still risky, still invasive. And I just thought, well, okay, we're still missing the boat on what the majority of patients are telling me that they would love to have. And is there anything I can come up with or anything that someone else has already started that I can kind of learn about and take off with that fits that description? And I looked into different areas of the body and the mouth seems to be a very natural tolerance promoting route to the immune system. And it's very safe, can be used for environmental and food allergens. And because of its safety, can be used at essentially any age. And had been actually in use in various forms in Europe for many decades, uh, almost as long as allergy shots, not just as long. Had actually been done in the US at a clinic for 40 years <laughs> by the time I was even hearing about it. And it just wasn't talked about much because it wasn't part of our mainstream training. So to me, it made a lot of scientific sense. It had a lot of potential to be useful for so many patients and exactly what they were looking for. And that's why I chose to pursue learning about it. The other clinic I worked at, I realized that this tool, I could never practice without using this tool again. Just couldn't go back into the traditional clinic and offer allergy shots when I knew there was a non-invasive way to help those patients better. 
I couldn't only offer oral immunotherapy when I knew there was a way that I could treat multiple food allergens, potentially open up all the doors that the family was looking for, and it was much less risky. So that's where, you know, James and I, when we decided to leave the other clinic, I was looking for jobs and I was asking even some of the, the folks at other clinics, hey, can I, can I bring this tool here? Can I use sublingual immunotherapy? I've learned so much about it. I've used it in over a thousand patients. It's, it's a phenomenal tool. And I was being told, no, it's not, you know, there's no insurance codes for it. And we don't do that. And we don't want to incorporate that in our practice. So we kind of, that, that's what pushed us into opening our clinic a bit earlier than we ever thought of. Um, and we said, you know what, this is important. And someone needs to do this and do this well and have this on the table for all those families that could benefit. So we should do it. We decided to open the clinic with that as kind of the central foundation of listening to patients, matching them to, a, you know, the treatment route that fits with their goals. So at our clinic, we offer sublingual immunotherapy as what we focus our expertise on, but their initial consultation is usually to really just get them to open up and get an open dialogue going to figure out what's their best route. So for some people, their goals match a lot better with oral immunotherapy or with allergy shots or with avoidance. You know, there's lots of different pathways or with certain medicines. And so I see my job as to guide them on that first. And if it's something that is not what we offer at our clinic, then I have a lot of colleagues that offer different things and I, I help my best to match them to a place that would be good for them. But if as, as a lot of people are looking for, you know, sublingual immunotherapy is a good option for them, then at least they have that option with us. And they know that it's something we have expertise in. We've done a lot and we're excited about and interested in continuing to develop and continuing to be creative with it, with the scientific foundation that it rests on. So that, that all together kind of is what, uh, what we do and what, what brought us to open. Yeah. And from my perspective, you know, not being in the healthcare field at all and not knowing much of it at all, other than kind of seeing, seeing from an outside perspective of what she does in her clinic work. You know, I'd been to her clinic, I'd been to the clinic that she worked at. I'd seen the patients, I'd talked to them. I've gotten to know some of them. You know, we talk about sublingual immunotherapy, oral immunotherapy, allergy shots. We had talked about all of those things. So I had a good perspective or I started learning a good perspective of what all of those treatments do, you know, kind of what patients talked about at her, the clinic she worked at, what they were looking for. And, you know, from my perspective, I, you know, being in the, the Marine Corps, being a police officer, doing the things that I have always done, they may seem like something outside of the healthcare realm, but it was always my way of helping others volunteer for veteran communities. I do a lot of things to help others. So this was just another avenue for me to help other people with something, you know, maybe it's a little outside of my realm, but I can learn anything. And, you know, seeing everything that I saw and hearing the logic behind all these treatment options, it wasn't, and we both left our jobs <laughs> and started this clinic with our own money, you know, in a town, we moved from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or from La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin to Charlotte, North Carolina, away from our families, you know, away from the majority of the people are in our friends or in our circle to start this clinic, mainly because there was a big airport here for people to travel to see us. We thought we could be most useful here. And we did all of this not as a risky venture, but because we both believe in it so much. And 
we both believe that this wasn't risky at all, that this had potential to be very beneficial, not only for us and working together and creating something from scratch, but also for the majority of people that would have access to us now as a, another clinic that's providing subliminal immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a million reasons and we can go on about this mm-hmm. forever, but the gist of it is, is, you know, we saw something that wasn't utilized very often in the allergy field, but should be, but should be. And we don't see it being put on the same level with some of the other treatment options or, or talked about as being an equivalent to the rest of them as an option for patients. So when we realize the possibilities with this treatment and all the other factors that go into it, you know, we jumped at the chance to start this now rather than later. And this is with two young toddlers that we also are taking care of. So it's, it's definitely was a venture worth taking and a quote unquote risk worth taking. And we're glad we did it. Now question for Dr. Schroeder. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me, since you have moved from one of the general clinics that you worked at and you created Algenuity Health Clinic, have you ever get any lawsuits or any filing, health violations? Have you gotten any of that from the government or from the states or anything else? Sure. Thankfully, no. <laughs> um, I'm still, so what we're doing is innovative and and unique, but it's it's well within the realm of known scientific knowledge in the field and treatment methods that have been studied and uh, have been even presented to the FDA in different forms that have been approved by the FDA. So the sublingual route providing allergen, like I said before, has you know decades of scientific evidence and varieties of different types of studies that have been done mostly in Europe. And there are FDA approved tablets right now. Yeah. And that's what I was going to mention. So, so in Europe, they, I can't remember if it was the eighties or nineties, but, but basically at some point their safety commission said, had enough information to say, you know, okay, we're doing allergy shots. A lot of the world is doing allergy shots. We're doing allergy shots, but we're also doing sublingual for environmental allergens. And we're seeing that the safety with sublingual is is so much better than with allergy shots and the efficacy appears equivalent. So we should really look into this and see if we should be changing our methods or at least supporting the sublingual route a lot more and making it more mainstream. And so in the 90s, I think it was, whatever their safety commission is there, reviewed a lot of evidence and, and did some studies and, and basically through their support behind sublingual immunotherapy as a great route to use, confirmed its efficacy and confirmed its safety and, and recommended that it become more mainstream in Europe. And so, and that's what's happened. It's become a lot more prevalent in Europe for environmental allergens. Um, the U.S., you know, for whatever reason, didn't kind of go that route. And many other places in the world haven't gone that route. And there's just a lot of different rules and things behind the scenes that um, plays a role in that, uh, unfortunately. But but in the U.S., if something becomes FDA approved, that's mainly a standardization process so that a standardized version of something can be used by essentially any doctor who can kind of assess a patient and see if they match the indications for that use, and then kind of you can just prescribe it, a tablet, one, one size fits all sort of a thing. And so uh, that's what was approved in the U.S. for sublingual. Um, there's uh, four tablets 
that are approved each for a single individual environmental allergen or group of similar allergens. And it's sort of a one size fits all, but they did very much approve that the sublingual route is, is useful. It's generally safe and effective for treatment of allergies. What we do is take that a step further and say, well, each person is unique. Each person is an individual and the immune system is very complex. So maybe people don't need to be on the same doses. And certainly there's a, a good bit of side effect from the FDA approved slit tablets, sublingual immunotherapy tablets. Some people, their mouth burns, some people so much so that they don't want to take it. And it could easily be resolved by just lowering the dose a bit and getting their body used to a lower dose, which could still be very effective for them. But since the tablet is a one size fits all sort of thing, you can't do that with the tablet. So what we do is approach the individual, look at their whole picture. Some people are allergic to more than one thing. In fact, many people are atopic and allergic to more than one thing. So rather than having to take and pay for multiple high dose tablets that could provoke symptoms if it's too strong and could be very expensive, we try to find doses that work for a person and look at their whole comprehensive picture, treat any of the sensitizations that appear relevant, and we can do it for foods as well. So we have that for environmental and foods, which just opens so many more doors for people. So all of that is still very science-based. It's just considered off-label treatment, which is something that is allowed, very much legal, you know, perfectly acceptable. And is it does open additional liability for a physician because a lot of it then depends on what the physician can support of their medical decision-making on why they chose to offer this to a patient. And so many physicians aren't going to go too far out of their area of expertise in offering off-label treatments. But as an allergist, as an allergist who wanted to learn more about immunotherapy and dug deep there, got experience with every form of immunotherapy that I could, and you know learned about the benefits of this one and saw it in action, even though it does increase my ability because it is off-label, I think there's more than enough science that supports it. I also have so much experience with it now so that breaking off on my own and continuing to optimize it and doing it while it has those risks um, certainly has not, I, I don't think it puts us in any tremendous liability risk uh, in terms of you know what we're doing because we're doing everything very science-based, very carefully and very thoughtfully, just like various cancer treatments or other things that are off-label that aren't standardized, but that a very you know dedicated and thoughtful physician can do and can do well, and it can actually really help people. And it might be the only thing that helps that person. So that's kind of how we look at what we're doing and how others, and I think the government also looks at what we're doing. And if anyone had any questions and wanted to ask, we would be open and right there, ready to answer. We have a lot of answers for, for the questions. So, so thankfully we've been, it's been good. <laughs> it's been smooth sailing and patients have been getting the help that they couldn't get elsewhere and have been very thankful. So. Now carry me through the process of starting Algenuity Health from scratch. Uh, the mechanics of it. <laughs> well, how about like the business side of it, the marketing, the finances, all of that? Sure. Um, well, yeah, 
So the marketing part of it, well, again, we started this clinic with, with our own money. So from we, our savings. Yeah, from our savings. We didn't have a nest egg or anything. Yeah, we didn't have a nest egg. We don't come from money or anything like that. And we had, you know, student loans and still have still have <laughs> uh, student loans and stuff like that and toddlers that cost an arm and a leg. Yeah. So we, we started this with, with our own money. So we don't have the big marketing funds to kind of, you know, advertise kind of more widely. So a lot of this was done via word of mouth, social media. We answer, we try to be available to anybody who's asking questions. We spend quite a bit of time, probably yeah, a lot of time. <laughs> we spend a lot of time answering questions, either through social media, through emails, by phone, Free meet, and um, greets, meet and greets, do. video chats, just to try and get Community. people. And it's, it's kind of any immunotherapy, oral immunotherapy is the same way. You need to spend a lot of time communicating and educating people on the nuances of the treatment they're pursuing. So we try to, because sublingual immunotherapy is not something that's widely available or widely talked about. One of the main things that we do at this clinic is educate, mm -hmm. not just on sublingual, sublingual immunotherapy, it's going to be on oral immunotherapy, some of their other options as well. And on testing and on results, testing, just general how to read results stuff. because nothing is black and white. Mm -hmm. All of it is very nuanced and individualized. So a lot of the, the effort that we give is from our free time, just, well, free time, but mm -hmm. it's free time That's of fair. us responding to people and their questions and trying to give them the information to make them feel comfortable and knowledgeable and empowered by whatever decision that they end up making that's best for them and their families. The other piece of what we, what we did with our business was we tried to evaluate just our style, our own style. And I, as a physician, had a lot of trouble fitting into the box of the, the typical healthcare system in the U.S. where, and I understand why it's this way. There's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of ups and downs with the healthcare system and a lot of reasons why it's become what it's become. But it, it's not what I ever wanted it to be. And um, for example, you know, having to see patients very quickly, only being given five minutes with a patient. Why well, I, I can't dig in and get to know a patient or their goals, or allow them to get to know me and see if together we feel like we're a good team. Um, if they can trust me, if I can trust them to to listen to my recommendations or ask if they have questions, you know, that takes time. And in the traditional system, I was never given time. And so I would still try to make time. <laughs> and then my employers wouldn't be too happy with me because I would spend as much time as I possibly could with each patient. And if they double or triple booked me, you know, then that would become a problem. And then I would ask them to not double or triple book me. And then they would <laughs> get mad at me for that. Because from their perspective, if patient cancels and that slot goes open, then reimbursements aren't able to happen. and because reimbursements from insurance sometimes are not very good, you know, from the business perspective at most typical clinics, they're looking to have every slot filled because often they get under reimbursed. Um, so then the clinic can't run well. So, but from a physician perspective, I wanted more than five minutes with the patient. I wanted half an hour or an hour or two hours. If it was a new patient or a family that had significant struggles that we needed to navigate through and get to know one another. So that was just not possible in the traditional system. And so James and I talked about that a lot. And, you know, what was our style going to be? There are some people who are very good at being urgent care doctors. 
you know, they do a quick assessment and they, and they give you what you need to get by that day. And the chronic care stuff goes to someone else. I, that was not my good fit. Again, I'm not a, I can make decisions quickly. That's fine. But I, I don't want to only have the few minutes with the person and that's not my comfort spot to, to make the quick decision and, and send them on their way. Like I really want to dig in. That's just who I am. I want to know more. I want to build that relationship. And I think a lot of patients appreciate that for chronic care stuff as well. And so we wanted to build a clinic that allowed for that. And there we thought about it and we tried to figure things out with insurance companies and there's just no way to do that in the U S working within the insurance managed system. They just won't allow for it. They don't reimburse for the right things. Sometimes they don't reimburse for your time spending with a patient to really get to know them and build trust, which sets the stage for everything, which is really important. And so if we couldn't do that and we couldn't you know, stay afloat <laughs> because insurance wouldn't pay us anything, we had to find a different way. So we chose to do the direct care route which basically is getting back to how medical care used to be, where it was between a patient and their doctor. No middlemen, just a patient and their doctor, talking about things, taking as much time as you need, getting to know one another, deciding if you're a good team to work together or if there's a better fit in a different direction or elsewhere, and and moving forward if you want to. We could, uh, because of that kind of relationship, and cutting insurance out of the picture. We could do things that are off-label a lot more easily without having to even try to fight insurance companies and of course getting the rejection later anyway that you knew you were gonna get, but you spend hours fighting the fight that you know you're gonna lose. We could make our pricing and our billing all transparent so patients could know their fees ahead of time. They could decide if the value works for them and if they can pay it or if they want to save up and, and can pay for it because this is the style they want and, and our relationship is what they want. Um, and we could be creative with, with how we did our healthcare billing for patients and try to make it even easier. So for our chronic care patients, we brainstormed and decided to have some faith in, in people that they, if they're committed, you know, that they'll stick around and that if we provide good education up front and they make a good, a well-informed decision up front, that sets the tone for everything later. And so for patients like that, we offer deferred payment plans or programs. So kind of like a payment plan at the hospital when we had our kids, you know, it was $20,000 <laughs> to have our daughter and our son each. And we couldn't pay for that right away. And so we went on a payment plan. So to pay that off over many years. So we sort of offer that to our patients right now where we say, hey, if you this is a good fit for you, we won't charge you for a two-hour consult, which is obviously expensive, skin testing, which is expensive, immunotherapy, which is expensive, you know, blood testing potentially, if you have that done. That that can all get in the follow-up appointments and continuing immunotherapy. That's all, you know. That's all really good quality care, which means that it's going to be expensive. And we didn't want to only cater to someone who could spend all that money upfront. So we made these programs and thought out what would be a good, relatively feasible amount for a wide variety of families to choose. Um, and then they would know exactly what they have to budget for. So just like a cell phone payment plan or a car payment plan, or any other healthcare 
payment plan, we offer that to our patients and say, you know, hey, we'll give you $2,000 worth of care up front because we want to do this right for you, but you don't have to pay that. You just have to pay monthly and we'll continue your care. So you won't even have paid off your initial services by the time we see you for follow-up. And we add more services and care and we add more immunotherapy, but that's okay. We want, we want you to get this, get access to this and we trust you. And, and we've set up for that such that our chronic care patients really don't catch up to paying us for their services that they've received in the immunotherapy for a good three to four years. So it's a big risk that we took. Obviously, it was difficult to start out that way because we provide so much care and we would collect so little for what we provided. And we let people leave with very expensive immunotherapy that they had not paid for, hoping that they weren't going to just disappear on us. But we relied on our education that we provided and the relationship that we built in those early hours to have faith that we could make this option available that way. And so far, it's really overall been good. Mm -hmm. Um, We've, you know, we've had a good balance. And though it was tough as a business at the beginning, because of the what we chose to offer, um, the way we chose to offer it, uh, we, we have really built such good um, faith, I think, in the community and, and our word of mouth from our patients for what the value that they get with us has been great. And that's really how we've marketed and grown. We haven't done any active advertising. We're not salespeople. We're not trying to be, we just wanted to grow this organically and see where it goes. What did you wish you knew before starting Allergenity Health? How hard it was going to be? I mean, we yeah. knew, but we didn't know. <laughs> yeah, I, if, if lo- looking, yeah, looking back at the beginning, I don't know if we would make this decision. I mean, I'm glad we did made this decision and it's, it's, I'm glad we were doing something that actually is meaningful, but looking back at the start and how much we didn't know, how, how many questions we didn't even know what to ask side, about the business the side yeah. or all of the different systems that we had to put in place and what worked, what wouldn't work. And there's just an inordinate amount of time and learning in the beginning to try and figure out what works well together and then to make it seem like it's from the patient perspective, like everything is smooth. Like this is easy. It's not... They come in, they do their appointment, they get their treatment, they leave, they call it like they get everything and they don't know any of any of the the backside (laughs) of it. So learning all of that has been extraordinarily difficult. And we're starting from scratch where nobody knew who we were. And And nothing like this has really been done before with all the pieces. And Charlotte has no models to follow. follow. Charlotte, there's a lot of two big hospital systems and then there's two big allergy like kind of clinic systems here. So there's a lot of, you know, competition in the allergy field in this area for attention. But I think we are offering something so unique. And like she said, when we're marketing this, it's us just giving knowledge away, being us, being helpful, having a different style, because that's the, besides being offering subliminal immunotherapy as a differentiator, we also, our business model, our style, the way we communicate with people, hopefully, mm-hmm. is a, a something extraordinarily different from what they're going to get at the majority of other clinics, you know, especially in this area. It's just going to be a different style. And if, it's, if it fits that person and what they're looking for, you know, all of that, you know, made the beginning part of it that we, where we didn't know anything really. <laughs> 
it, it made it all worth it. I think but the other thing we didn't know was how mentors, that was the thing. We had no yeah. mentors. So finding a mentor would have been nice. Would have been nice to kind of give us some answers so we didn't have to have some little trip ups along the way or kind of frustrations. <laughs> Pull our hair out trying to learn the rules. We also didn't know I didn't know. I think James predicted this better than I did because he's the one who chose to move to suggest that we move to Charlotte. And part one of the reasons was because he, in his research of where there were the majority of allergy patients, both environmental and food allergy sufferers that we could try to help, he found that North Carolina, interestingly, had the highest number of food allergy diagnoses in the you know put in the medical record systems in 2016 or whatever yeah, the, the year. recent year was that. We looked. And then of course, this region of the country and everywhere, but this region, you know, with the warmer weather has a lot of environmental allergies. So that put this on the map for us and for him in particular. And then he had a lot of faith in what we were planning to offer and what he had seen of me in the clinic before where I worked before. And he said, you know, he's like, people are going to want to see you from far away. So we should be somewhere where they have easy access, whether it's easy access via driving several hours or an airport that has direct flights to a lot of places. And I just kind of laughed at him and, and appreciated that my husband loves me and was being kind to me. And I had seen patients from all over the country at my previous clinic, but so I, I was used to long distance care and doing that and how unique this, this was, but I, you know, it's like, we're brand new, like nobody's going to hear of us. We don't even have a marketing plan. I didn't really think that was something we had to be prepared for right away. But before we opened our doors, um, we already had a wait list. And this was, again, not from us marketing. This was from some of our old, my old patients just finding me since my old practice wouldn't, didn't give any details about what I was going to be leaving and doing. But thanks to the internet, some of my old patients were just kind of looked me up and, and found us and shared about us and other people found us. We had people calling and getting on our wait list for when our doors open. And they were from, I think, 11 different states mm -hmm. before we even opened. Um, so right away, we had to figure out how to, what the rules were for providing long distance care and how we could do that and the logistics and jump right in with not only having a new small clinic, but having a new small clinic that serviced the entire country. And that was, <laughs> that was, um, I mean, it, we were very honored and we still are, and it's a privilege it's to do that. And so it's amazing. But it was not something I, I was planning at the beginning uh, <laughs> and, and thinking back on all of it, when we look at all the moving pieces and we remember both our parents, you know, kind of telling us being really concerned and they're like, what are you guys doing? Why are you doing this? And we were like, we're fine. We're good. We're, we have a plan. And now when we look back on it, we're like, oh, they had a lot of points. <laughs> when you think about all these steps, this sounds crazy. We sound like we were taking a huge risk and, and I guess we were, but we really had faith in this and had a plan and followed it and grew and figured stuff out. And, and, and both of us, it. both of us are hard workers. Both of us are very, very diligent in the work that we do. And, you know, and, and Nikhil is going to be humble about this, but, you know, I've been around a lot of extraordinary people, you know, being in the military, police officer, uh, going to, a, you know, UVA, I, I've been around a lot of extraordinary people and seeing Nikhil work in the field. And there's a lot of great allergists too, and, and other physicians, but, you know, I've seen, a lot of them talk and I've seen a lot of their thinking and I've seen a lot of 
you know, stuff from my perspective. And then I see her talk and her work with patients and the, all the things that she's good at, you know, going to MIT and turning down Harvard and some of these other places and, you know, just kicking butt at life in general and, and just being so humble and kind to people and wanting to do the best for people in every instance. So, you know, you ask what we wish we would have known in the beginning. And it's, it's weird because like when it all started, I didn't think it was a crazy idea at all because I knew my partner and my partner in life was Nikila. And I've seen all the amazing things that she's done and how hard she works and how diligent she is and how thorough she is. And it's one of the, the quotes I, and I tease her <laughs> about it all the time, but you know, she is very thorough on everything she does sometimes making me look like I am so like sloppy on something but and I tease her about it but you know it's just who she is and so to me it wasn't a risk at all and and seeing what she can do and will do it was part of my work to work with her to get her to help the people that she wants to help but also you know get her name as something you know out there to other people because she deserves, in my opinion, all the recognition because there's a lot of great doctors out there, but there's a lot of great doctors that don't get any recognition or any kind of notice uh, of, of the work that they're doing. And so it's, again, it's my honor to be able to work with her and, and promote the work that she's doing. So Thank all you. of this is, it's, it's not hard when you have good partners to work with. Oh, and likewise, James and I make a really good team and he's learned so much about the allergy world that people, when they call and he talks to them, they think that he's the allergist and I'm fine with that because <laughs> he is so knowledgeable now. So we didn't know a lot when we started, but we have figured it out. We figured it out together. And, um, you know, anyone who is interested in, in following their passion and adding to the medical world, you know, I'd encourage to not be scared of it, but know that it is hard. But there's a lot of people out there that are willing to help and talk to you. And they might not know how to be direct mentors for exactly what each, each physician you know, wants to set up for their clinic. But certainly little bits help everywhere. And just having people say, hey, I've, I've been there. I've opened a practice that was unique. And it's tough, but it's doable. Here's the things we've learned, good and bad. You know, I, think it's, I think that's out there for if anybody who's listening is thinking about opening a practice. What's the biggest mistake you've made as entrepreneurs? Biggest one. <laughs> I'm sure we made plenty. One, one mistake I can think of, and you can think too, James. I think from an entrepreneur perspective, this is where being a doctor at heart and, and a human <laughs> versus being an entrepreneur, I think clash a little bit, is the devotion of our time. As James said, we give we give a lot of our time to this mission uh, for free. And, and while that's good, that's, you know, that's what our hearts want to do, but it is, it's tough. It's tough both personally for doing that and wanting to still be good parents and have time with our kids and, and everything. But it's also been, I think, a little tough from the business side as well. Giving so much of our time for free, of course, takes away time from stuff we could be doing to grow from a business perspective and entrepreneur perspective, we have so many more things in queue and ideas that we've partially fleshed out, but we can't enact many of them because we're still giving our time for free in many ways. And so we, with that time gone and with the funds not coming in because of what we're doing for free, then that, that restricts what 
we can do with our new ideas and our other things that we have in queue that we just we can't get off the ground because we don't have the time or we don't have the money. Also with just setting that stage from the beginning, we were very kind of lax about setting any sort of boundaries for our clinic and kind of rules, just interactions with families. And so we wanted to be very accessible and we are very accessible. And most of our patients are very respectful of that. But then word kind of gets around that, you know, oh, well, I called and I talked to the doctor for two hours and I didn't have to pay anything. So because I called under the guise of asking a question and she just took the time with me. (laughs) So we would have people call and then James tries to set up a consult because they have a bunch of questions. And then they say, oh, well, my friend said they just called and got to talk to Dr. Schroeder for a couple hours for free. So, and then we get, you know, we don't know what to do about that because we did it out of kindness, but we can't do that all the time, you know, indefinitely. Especially as we grow. And, and now we have a lot of patients that we're taking care of. And so, you know, we have to figure out a better balance of, of our time and compensation for that, for what we do. And, and I think that's one of the things as an entrepreneur, from that perspective, that we've had trouble with, because from the doctor perspective, as I mentioned before, one of the things I want to do is give people time, give people education. So, but I'm just one person. (laughs) I only have a finite amount of time. I have other parts to my life that I would love to get back to as well. And of course I have our family and our children and my own health to try to, you know, take care of. So that's, that's definitely a mistake or something that we, you know, we need to plan better. We need to figure out a different path for as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, I would second, I would second all of that. I mean, the other big thing is more personal stuff. Like, so this job is all encompassing and then having toddlers on top of it, it kind of takes away a lot of the extra free time that you have. So my, one of the things that I wish I would not have stopped once we started running this clinic and and moved out here was working out, uh, exercising, (laughs) because right now all we're doing is, is either working or spending time with our our kids and our family. So I've cut out doing a lot of the the self-care stuff which, and, and it's weird because I read a lot of books or listen to a lot of podcasts, you know, Tim Ferriss and some of these other people who, you know, talk about self-care and taking care of yourself. And that is something that honestly, both of us has, have completely stopped doing mm-hmm. um, because we're so involved in the clinic and then taking care of our kids. So, so we need to, so that's something that, that we would balance. need to do because it would help us not only for ourselves, but it helps with the business too, yeah. to have a clear mind and clear kind of thought process in, in doing this and the, having the, the energy levels that are required, having a break, <laughs> taking a little vacations. Some of that, I, I know it's not completely business related, but it definitely has an effect on on how you do some of the things that you do. And that's something that I wish I would not, or we would not have stopped mm-hmm. once we opened this clinic. Now, tell me what were your greatest failures and what did they teach you? <laughs> Ooh, well, from the business side i mean i think i think i don't know i don't i don't I, honestly there's i don't so think many things that are like pros and cons but in terms of like a failure we're still early in our development so it's hard to know to be honest with you like anything there, there's nothing that I, we either one of us completely regret or completely yeah. see as a failure because anybody who's going to be successful or is going to grow something into something successful is going to have hiccups or missteps or you know, quote unquote failures along the way, but (laughs) you are not going to grow to be a better business or a better person or a better anything without those learning examples along the way, because nobody is going to get it perfect right away. 
So as far as failures, I don't think we've ever had fit. Like when I went to college right out of high school, I went there to play basketball. I went there to, you know, quote unquote, find myself. And I failed out of college miserably. Like it was, it was scholastically, it was terrible. Well, which tell is, them why. You didn't go to class. I didn't go to class. <laughs> I, I played basketball. I was really good at basketball, but I was terrible at school. And that's why I went in the Marine Corps. But when I look back at it, like, would I be here now if I would have done that then? I don't know. And I, maybe I wouldn't have met Nikila. I wouldn't have, you know, gone on to graduate from, you know, University of Virginia. And I look back at that, those missteps or failures or whatever you call them as part of my growing process and learning process. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't see any failures as being anything dramatic that I need to look back on and regret some of the mistakes that I made. I think at all of it was a learning process to get to me, get yeah. me where I am now. And I'm sure Nikila feels the same way about, you know, her path as well. Yeah, we, you know, when I mentioned our kind of plan for the deferred payments for patients, I don't, I don't really consider that a failure because I, I'm glad we've offered that. And I think it's helped so many patients be able to afford this type of high quality care. But in terms of from the business side, like that, we were highly advised by all business people that, 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 I mean, we were crazy and that that was not okay. And we need to charge patients up front. And what are we doing? And there was not one person like, that went along with what our thought process was. Yeah. <laughs> and so again, I don't know that it, I don't think it was a failure. I still am glad that we did it, but I, we've learned a bit in terms of in hindsight for a young business starting out offering to defer out so much from what the services we were offering maybe it was a bit much in terms of getting our feet off the ground as a clinic early on. We certainly could have used more, more capital funds, up front, more capital yeah. up front since we were funding this just from our savings account and we were doing this very organically. And so, you know, we've thought about different ways that we could handle this and, and potentially charging a little bit more appropriately for the amount of effort and work and services that people get up front instead of letting them defer out so much, maybe having a little bit more reasonable, slightly higher amount than what we charge them right now up front that could help from the business perspective and makes more sense with the value that we get. And then subsequently offering a payment plan, you know, things like that we've learned. But, it, but again, this is, we're an entrepreneur, we're right. entrepreneurships. We're, you know, creating <laughs> so something using, using our ingenuity to create something that has, you know, you know, at that point, nobody else was doing through the allergy field, but there's one other clinic, you know, that does direct care like us in, in California, but, but we didn't, sublingual. not the, not with sublingual and, and we didn't know it at the time. So doing those things, you know, anybody who's creating something from scratch, they're going to go through a learning process and figure out what works best. And hopefully I'm learning new information, you tweak, tweak and twist and mm -hmm. figure it out as you go along to make it a better process along the way. And that's continually what we're doing. And the reason we did the defer payments is again, we're trying to figure out a way to be most useful and beneficial and flexible for the people that we're seeing and helping everything that we do at this clinic is in service to the patients that we're seeing in a way that we can help them feel like they have a partner in this as they're going through it because nothing is more isolating than having some sort of chronic issue that you are not being heard or you feel alone or you're not feeling knowledgeable about it. So everything we're doing is trying to figure out ways to make it easier. So that it's one less thing they have to worry about or think about and, and, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. But again, you know, mm -hmm. it's all a learning process. That's what part of being an entrepreneur or, you know, <laughs> creating something new. That's, that's exactly <laughs> what it's all about. 
Now, tell me what were your personal, professional, and financial struggles? Um, financial is we don't have a rich family. <laughs> financial struggles. I mean, we, we, I think James mentioned student loans. I mean, um, we were, we're a young, well, I don't know, I guess that's relative, <laughs> but in, in terms of the medical profession where you don't get to really start your life until you're well into your thirties, you know, we opened this clinic for five years, four years after I came out of my training. So I had been in, in the medical world for since 2005, 2005. So it's been a long time, but a lot of that was training. So it was working, but also training. And then it was only a small number of years really after all of that, that we decided to open this clinic. So, you know, we, it's not like I had had a physician job, a substantial salary, and had had a lot of time to be paying down loans. You know, I had done a lot of schooling. So I had racked up a lot of loans to be able to afford all the schooling I had done. James had had done all of his schooling and had loans for all that. And so we had substantial amount of student loan debt and not many years of a substantial salary to mitigate any of that when we chose to start. So financially, you know, we weren't in a place that most people I think would be in when they start a clinic, when they make that decision. We were in a place of being very kind of quote unquote young in our careers and not having a nest egg or not, and still having a ton of student loan debt. So, but we just tried to be really smart about everything, plan, think things through, save and, and make arrangements to, to make realistic plans for how we could open this clinic. We chose to start with us with subleasing from another doctor's office, not, you know, exactly how we wanted to start obviously, but that made sense at the time. And since we were growing by word of mouth and not salesy stuff or big flashy signs or a big flashy clinic. People were coming to see us because of us or what they'd heard about us. And we didn't need, we felt like we could get by without the big fancy stuff. And so we started with a room in a small clinic, worked through our financial stuff. And still, you know, this pandemic obviously is, is, has hit a lot of businesses hard, but we took our financial struggles and just tried to work within that context for the clinic. Just, just being smart along the way with every, or making, with our situation, trying to, trying to make, make good, intelligent choices, yeah. personal struggles. Staying I think in shape. <laughs> staying in shape is certainly, you know, our, <laughs> our personal health or just the things that we wanted to do for our personal health. As James mentioned, we've let go of, which is not smart and something that we need to work on getting back. Our kids eat magnificent. They, they eat very healthy. Yeah. We we're good about a dietary stuff. We eat healthy. I mean, fairly. You, you eat more ice cream than you should. Um, but, uh, um, ice cream is delicious. I mean, if you want me to out you, I can out you. Um, but, but we, we personally, I think it's the time, you know, it's just that struggle. We, we, we also built this clinic with the intention in the long run to make it a great place to work for other, for the people we hire. And I know we're going to get there and it is a good, it's a great place for us to work. We love what we're doing. We love each other. We have set up a really cozy, comfortable clinic spot, which I think is really important and nice for, you know, if you're going to have an hour or two hours, I want to be able to sit on the floor with a child and play with them. I want them to be comfortable for doing a food challenge. I want them to be comfortable. It's, it's not a little tiny room, you know, cold clinical environment. It's, it's like a home. And so we have couches and we have toys and, and we have Wi-Fi <laughs> and, you know, things like that to make people feel comfortable. 
So we feel comfortable at the office as well. But we, we have set it up so that in the long run, or what we want to, is when we hire staff, we want them to be motivated and interested and comfortable and relaxed as well at the office. And we want a good balance. And so at the beginning of opening anything, I think it's really tough and you just have to work hard and work all the time. And that's the point we're at right now. But the long run is such that we have our system so smooth and we have enough people in place, which is what we're lacking right now is a few extra hands on deck to balance out the work and have everybody work comfortably at a pace that is comfortable and not rushed. As long as you're working hard all day, get the stuff done you need to, but do it well. And then have your evenings, have your weekends, have an extra day a week or half day of, of free time, you know, to have that balance in life that we all should have. We all deserve that. We should work hard when we work. We should have time to relax, which is so important for health and which so many of us, us included right now, are not doing. And that's our goal personally right now. We know we haven't reached that, um, but it's we're building. We're building the business. I mean, we take a lot of cues from from a lot of the other people out that have in the world that have been successful. I was like when we started this clinic, one of the books that we read was from Jen Cicero. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that how you pronounce her last mm-hmm. name? I can't remember her last name. She had a book that was just like, you know, if you think you can do it, do it. Like stop making excuses. Another book that I read called Leaders Eat Last from Simon Sinek. And it's the same kind of motto in the Marine Corps too, is you take care of everyone else and then you have the fruits like later on, but make sure you take care of people. So that's kind of like, all of those different things are things that we try and implement into the clinic to take care of everybody else. Now we just have to <laughs> find ways to help ways to take, take care of ourselves a little bit better. But yeah. you know, that's all part of the process right now. We're in the grind part of it, yeah. but we're still trying to take care of everyone else and everything else first. And then, you know, we get to sit down and, you know, relax at the end of the day and kind of share our thoughts on how to improve whatever it is that we see from our perspectives. And professionally, you know, I think I've probably taken the brunt of the professional risk or struggles on this on this part because, well, you've had you've had some stuff as well. In Not some like ways. you, but you know, being an allergist and board certified allergist, trained in pediatrics first, and then pediatric and adult allergy, doing what I'm doing, sadly, has somehow given myself. I feel like, or at least this is how I feel. When I talk to some of my colleagues, not all of them, but there's a stigma when you choose to do something different. And my training was the same. I just, I just thought about things maybe a little differently, or I chose to, to think a little deeper about certain topics and pursue them a bit more and found other useful tools and asked questions. Didn't get the answers I, that, that made sense to me from people in my traditional training, the classic situation. And I said, you know what, I'm not satisfied with those answers. I want to learn more. I want to figure this out for myself. Is sublingual immunotherapy useful? I just because there's not an insurance code doesn't mean that it's not potentially an extremely useful tool. So I want to, I want to know. And stepping out to do that was tough professionally. I've always been an academic minded person, a scientific person, logical. I like, I, I like I'm generally a rule follower. I'd like to kind of just um, learn rules, follow them. I, I am creative. I like to apply that to things and be innovative. But I always saw myself staying in the academic medicine realm. That was 
you know, what I always thought I would do. Um, I've been in school forever. And then I just thought I'd kind of stay with academics and do research and, and all that stuff. And as I was in that sector and, and going through all that and learning that, it started to become evident to me that while there's so much good that comes out of academic research, of course, it's not exactly what I hoped it was. There, there are other motivations in place, unfortunately, and from certain people or certain groups. And there's a lot of push to publish, to publish anything. Data, of course, can always be manipulated depending on what's presented or what's looked at and what's ignored or what the end goal of something is. So what, you know, there's a lot of ways, unfortunately, and academic research isn't always necessarily just pure, unbiased, and the most useful. There's lots of different ways that it can go. And there's to, to hold an academic career position, there's a lot of pressure to publish, even on topics you're not interested on or on something that you don't feel is necessarily adding to the field or trying to push the field in a certain direction just because of certain other influences. And, and that was stuff that I was just not comfortable with. You know, I wanted to study what I wanted to study. I wanted to see what shook out from the data for real and just present that. I didn't want to have pressure to put together 10 papers just because. I wanted to put together a paper if there was something worthy of putting together a paper for. And like there was that, just a, there was just a study that we just saw the other day that was how much time and education do you need to spend with somebody before they do a food allergy treatment? And while that is a relevant question and thought process, do you need a study to tell people that they need more time, more <laughs> time to understand how you know a certain food allergy treatment works? I think that is like pretty common knowledge that you need significant amount of time, but you know, there's a study on it now. <laughs> so that is relevant in the, in the food allergy world. And it becomes, you know, touted as evidence-based, but maybe, you know, it could have been looked at in multiple different ways. Who knows? And so it just, it became tough for me who had this kind of academic slant of wanting to do all that, but then seeing that the system wasn't quite what I wanted or expected it to be for that. And I, and, and the other part of it is if you want to do something creative in academic medicine, you can do it. Maybe if you have the right person behind you, if you're young, you need the right kind of mentor behind you who supports you in that, which sometimes is hard to find. But if you, even if you have that person, then you can get maybe a joint grant together to get funding, to put together a study, to look at basically one aspect of the topic you're interested in. And it takes years to put together that study, then do the study, recruit for it, you know, follow the patients through it, um, get information, start putting together publications, go through the publication process back and forth, find a journal to publish your results, hopefully. And then that's, you know, 10, 15 years later. And, and then if you want to develop a product, you know, another, then you have to work with a pharmaceutical company. You have to have a lot of funding. They supply funding for bigger, you know, studies, et cetera. This goes on forever. And your idea might not be able to come to fruition in the real world for 20 years. And you've only really studied one aspect of it. Whereas in private practice, you can be thoughtful if something's safe enough, you can, you know, go through all the traditional options and also offer thoughtful other options and say, hey, this is not studied, but this is why I think this could be useful. Here's my thought process. What do you think of that? 
you know, and pros and cons of every option, all the traditional stuff, and then any other things that you just use your brain for <laughs> and think for, but you don't have to spend 20 years caught in this kind of rat race. And so um, I took the risk to step out and do this. It was a huge professional risk. My colleagues advised me not to, and I still have a lot of people who don't even take the time to talk to me about it. They just see that I have a solo practice. I do sublingual immunotherapy. It's not mainstream. So they don't even want to hear from me. I might send a letter. I might, we might have a joint patient and I might send a letter to their office with some of my thoughts or a way to care for them and want to collaborate. And I don't even get a letter back from the other clinic sometimes. And which is just a, you know, professional discourtesy and, and it's tough as a professional to, to, have the same standing as all of those other colleagues, same board certification, and to be taking the risk to do something extra and putting a lot of extra thought into things and then be cast aside by some colleagues who won't even listen or who, you know, who just make a judgment without even talking to you and thinking that you're doing some sort of witchcraft or some sort of, you know, not scientific medicine. That's really hard. That's been professionally very hard, especially as an academic minded person. So that we've had, I struggle with that. James has seen me cry, you know, about these things. It's just, it's tough when you feel like you're doing, you're trying so hard and you're putting a lot of effort in to go above and beyond and then to be cast aside by people who- You just want to be seen by or recognize some recognition. Should be able to understand why you're doing, but for some reason they're not. And then they, they not only cast you aside, but actually sometimes actively, you know, will tell your- common patients, like, don't go see that person. Like sublingual is not a thing you should be thinking about. And it's, it's really just tough, the lack of understanding. So we've had professional struggles, personal struggles and financial struggles, (laughs) but we just plug on. Yeah. What were your struggles when you were working on the development of Algenuinity Health? Yeah, I think, oh, yeah, we kind of yeah, yeah went over most of that. It, it's just anytime you're starting something new and doing something different, there's going to be a lot of struggles trying to figure out, like, I have a business degree, but I've never really started a business to know how <laughs> to do a lot of the things that we need to do to capitalize on, you know, what we're good at and, and what we need to learn. Yeah, all the registration stuff, all of the admin stuff, licensing you know, working with, you know, outside businesses for supplies. There's just so much that goes into that. And, you know, it's just like anything else. And kind of like what I mentioned before, if you have the determination and grit, you just keep pushing through and finding answers and eventually you make it to the other side. And then there's more of the same waiting for you. And nobody who starts a successful business or business really of any kind is not going to face some challenges and not continue to see them. And you just have to know that they're going to be there and continue to try and find answers for them, be decisive and keep moving on. Uh, As long as you know what you're providing for as a service or a widget or whatever it is you're providing for the people they want to buy or purchase, as long as they like what you're providing and you keep doing what you're doing and that doesn't change, you know, that's, that's kind of how, <laughs> from my understanding, almost every business works, works mm-hmm. that way. And if, if people stop wanting the services or the product or whatever it is, then, you know, the business goes away or it has to, or it has to pivot somehow. Yeah. 
Now, how has the business been coping since COVID-19? It's been, it's been challenging, but we've been able to pivot just like James was talking about. Considering a lot of allergy clinics couldn't continue on doing what they're doing with their allergy shots mm-hmm. or oral immunotherapy, other than us changing to more of a telemedicine platform mm-hmm. for most of the stuff that we're doing, we've kind of just kept chugging along. Yeah. Sublingual immunotherapy, given its safety of the actual dosing and the different route that it uses, it was really amenable to potentially working through telehealth. It's not ideal, obviously, for any form of immunotherapy, as much oversight at a doctor's office as possible is great. But during a pandemic, we have new risks to weigh out and the risks of of uh, spreading this pandemic and or people getting infected certainly outweighed the very low risk of having any type of allergic symptoms with the sublingual immunotherapy updose. So we were able to, the, the challenging parts were switching over our processes, figuring out how to do telehealth, rescheduling everybody to telehealth things from in-clinic and explaining to patients how we're going to do this, trying to figure out how to get people, physically get them their immunotherapy since they weren't picking it up in the office. So some people locally would, long distance people we would mail it to, but arranging all of that, making sure that all worked smoothly was a challenge. But this keeping things going, our clinic was, I think, one of the few that really didn't have to change what we do at our core. We were still able to connect with patients directly. We were still able to do their sublingual immunotherapy updoses. We took some financial hits, of course. You know, other people, if they lost their businesses, wound up, you know, maybe choosing to stop for a while. And so, you know, we offered a lot of sponsorships because it just broke our hearts to see children who you know, had been on treatment for a year or something and doing great. And then their family, you know, lost a bunch of financial, uh, their finances and and was having to cut back everything. And so we've sponsored a lot of patients and children right now. So as meaning that they continue their care, but we're not billing them with the, again, with the faith and the hope that when things turn around for that family, they'll start on their deferred payments again. So as a business, that's a hit for us then, because we're a small business and we also took financial hits. At the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't really know, you know, nobody knew much about what was happening. And so we canceled and our, and or our new patients all basically canceled. So we lost our growth for about three or four months, which as a new clinic, newer clinic, you know, that's important that that we need that. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, financially we had some struggles, but comparatively to a lot of our colleagues, you know, we didn't, we didn't have such a big drop off or dip. We were pretty consistent with all of our chronic care patients and at least keeping their care going. Financially, we did whatever we had to do, but treatment went on. The patients got the care they needed. We pivoted to telehealth and we've reopened a little bit to some in-clinic stuff, keeping people spread out, keeping people safe. And it's overall... We usually have one family in the clinic at the time, so yeah, everybody's just spread people out. Really safe. So yeah, we've we we realized that we should plan for a pandemic. This is probably not the only time this is going to happen, and and even though we've pivoted and we've, we're doing okay, we're already starting to think forward to the future where there might be you know a pandemic with even more risks, different types of health conditions, etc. And so just we're optimizing our our, our clinic to, in a way yeah. that makes it as easy as possible for patients, no matter what the situation is. But yeah, we've been going, keeping on. So it's been good <laughs> from that standpoint for patients. 
All right. So we're going to go into the quick roundup section where I ask a question and you're going to answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> sure. All right. So the first question is, give a strategy that has helped you manage stress. Eat ice cream. James. <laughs> <laughs> I lean on James. James eats a bowl of ice cream. That's how it works. <laughs> no, I mean, the stress, yeah. I mean, we totally lean on each other. If, if we didn't, I, I don't know, from my perspective, if we didn't have each other, it, this would make it extraordinarily more difficult. We know we are best friends, can lean on each other. If I'm having a rough day, I can talk to her. If she's having a rough day, she can talk to me. We just know and fully trust in each other to be able to be open and transparent about what we're feeling and, and our thought process on everything. Because if, if we're not, that's going to create more friction, you know, in many ways down the line. So having each other has made mm -hmm. this you know, I'm sarcastic. I'm sorry. I, I will throw that out there, but, um, ice cream is everything to him. Ice cream and basketball. <laughs> I guess I fit in there somewhere, but <laughs> you're small. You fit in. Um, no, but yeah, without her, you know, this would, this would be impossible. Um, so definitely leaning on each other would, is how we manage the stress <laughs> and cooking. Yeah. We cook a lot. I like to cook. What's your favorite food? Oh, I know your answer. Go ahead. Um, no, I mean, my favorite food in general is Indian food. We, we <laughs> love Indian food. We cook Indian food quite a bit. And then we have our Taco Tuesdays with Trezo Tacos. Mm -hmm. I don't have to say the same. We, um, I'm Indian, but I didn't grow up. I grew up in Wisconsin, but I didn't uh, grow up with like home-cooked Indian food every day. That wasn't uh, how I grew up. And so um, I, I learned about Indian food, just like any, just like, you know, a non-Indian person, essentially. I was like, this is really good <laughs> at a restaurant. <laughs> or certainly when my family went back to India several times. So as an adult, I decided, gosh, I want to learn how to cook this. So we find YouTube videos and we've learned how to cook it. And we're pretty good now, both James and I at cooking Indian mm -hmm. food. And that and our taco nights are our favorites. Taco bachelor bachelorette nights. <laughs> <laughs> If you had one piece of advice to someone just starting out, what would it be? Um, the first thing that came to my mind was have faith. Yeah, I was going to say just do it. Just do it. Yeah. Know it's going to be hard, but if you're if it's really something you want to try. And you're passionate about it. Just try. Yeah, do it. If it goes well, great. If it fails, quote unquote fails, it's not really a failure because you'll probably have learned something from it and that you'll take that to whatever you do next, whether it's a similar form of something new or something totally different, but you've learned learned a good deal. So And the other thing would be ask questions. Don't be afraid to reach out and ask questions. Both of us don't like bothering people or mm -hmm. feeling like we're an imposition of any kind. But you know, both of us have tried to be better at reaching out and asking questions to people that think that might be able to help us or give us some guidance or information that will be beneficial. So just do it and ask questions. Mm -hmm. Now, what app has helped you with managing your budget or finances? Oh, right now we use Wave Apps. Wave Apps. It's kind of our... And then Microsoft Excel. And then Excel, yeah. Well, those are the two free programs that we use. Our account actually suggested Wave Apps. and It connects with your accounts and, and enters everything in or most of everything in. So that's been nice and it's free. So that's always mm -hmm. good. 
What's your favorite dream trip? Or what would be your favorite dream trip? New Zealand. Yeah, I think Australia, New Zealand. I Both of us like traveling a lot. I mean, favorite dream trip, I suppose, would be traveling around the world. Yeah, I was going to say traveling around the world. I mean, we've been to so many different places. Before children. Before children. <laughs> <laughs> and we love different foods and different cultures and kind of immersing ourselves in the kind of the culture that we're in, wherever that may be. Um, so I don't know if there's a specific dream trip. I, yeah, New Zealand, Australia, we would definitely love to travel to. But we've been to India and Croatia, Moldova, Paris, Ireland. Like we've, I lived in Guatemala for a little while. We just love, love traveling. So there is no specific dream trip, just anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> traveling Any, again. <laughs> anywhere that's different. And I've been in the Middle East too, and that was an experience all until itself too. All right. So tell me what is your morning routine like? So tell me what's your morning routine like? Well, we usually get woken up by the kids and then most of our morning routine is is mainly just getting the kids ready and then getting ourselves ready taking turns and and starting the day, but we are trying to do a little more with exercise and preparation, just kind of taking a minute for ourselves in the morning. James has been walking the dog, right? Yeah, I've been trying to get up a little bit earlier to get the dog on a really long walk, like a three or four mile walk before we get started with the day so I can get moving a little bit. But then it's mainly, you know, trying to spend some time with the kids, get them ready for school and and just play with them a little bit because we work so much that spending and the time that we have with them, we try and make time for them when we're around them. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of our morning routine is just kind of switching off, getting ready and then otherwise taking care of and spending time with our kids. I try to do when I can a little exercise with like a dance exercise video so that I can, I don't know, just get some energy out and and learn new things while I'm at it. I love dance, but yeah. And then after that, we, we start preparing for patients and things like that. I usually prep in the car, look through charts, answer messages if I can, sometimes make phone calls and just sort of prepare for the day, make a plan for each patient as much as I can ahead of time. And James enlightens his mind and listens to podcasts and I've turned into an old man. I listen to podcasts, <laughs> educational podcasts. <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty much our morning routine. Nothing super special. How do you find a balance between home and work? That is a difficult question. I mean, for us, it blends right yeah, now. Yeah, it's, it blends. I mean, the majority of our personal life and work life is pretty blended just because we're starting this clinic So there's a lot of stuff where one of us is working or the other one is working. Um, But we try and when the kids are around or they're in this house, unless there's like urgent matters or there's like a project that we're, we need to finish or patient stuff that's more on the more urgent side. We, we try and spend a lot of time with our kids when they're home, either watching movies with them or playing outside or going for walks or whatever we can do with them. So we just try and make sure to split that time between, you know, when we're with our kids and when we're not with them, it's mainly work. Yeah. That's, that's the thing right now is that we we're pretty good about dedicating time to our kids. And when we're with them, we're focused on them and that's everything. And, and toddlers are pretty good at keeping our focus as well. They don't really let you 
have a second to think about anything else. Um, so that's great and, and we enjoy it, um, dedicate a lot of our time to them. And then the rest of the time, that's where we, we need to do a little better, we could do a little better and we wanna try to figure out how to get out of the grind of you know, just so much thinking about and talking about work-related stuff as we plan build this clinic because James and I don't take the time to have like, you know, our time either by ourselves to do something like exercise or together, you know, as a, as a married couple's like go on our date nights and stuff like that. We haven't done that. Or if we do, when we have, we wind up thinking about ideas for work anyway, and we're brainstorming constantly ways we can keep improving things because we're so excited about it. So mm. we're, we're conscious of striking a balance though. And I think recently we've been telling each other, you know, Hey, like when we do the, this right now, we're not going to talk about work at all. <laughs> like we're just going to remember the other stuff we used to have fun with. Let's talk about music. Let's talk about art, you know, stuff with the world where we might want to go on a trip someday and not talk about work or think about work for this time. Mm -hmm. And that hel that helps when we, actively disengaged for a second that helps keep the balance and it's actually really refreshing mm -hmm. you have the chance to ask your business idol one question what would it be and why is it a good question to ask well i don't really have any one question for you know some of the people that i listen to or look to for advice because i try and read all their books or listen to their podcasts or whatever i mean the main thing is is we don't know what we don't know so having somebody with a different perspective than ours and having them understand what we're doing and what our goals are and seeing if they see us on the right path or if there's things we're missing that could help improve what we're doing already. That would probably be my one question is based on what we're doing right now and, and the path that we want to head towards. Is there anything we're missing? Do they see anything that we're, we're completely blind to? That's, that's something that I would want to know. Yeah, I guess for me, I don't, I'm trying to get more in the mindset a bit because I have to about being a business person now that we took on this challenge of opening a clinic and, and, and by necessity, it is a business and for our family's livelihood, it is a business, but it, it, some, it conflicts a bit just in my heart again with the other side of me, the main part of me, which is being a doctor and, and just just the pure, simple principles of taking care of someone without thinking at all about anything monetary or anything related to business, just purely, you know, who you are as a human, what is your health condition, how can I help you, and, and pushing everything else outside of that. So that's more where my mindset is, and, and I like it that way, but at the same time, you know, clinics can't survive that way because we wind up just like we have at the beginning and still do, you know, we give away a lot for free and, and we can't help people if we give away so much for free that we give away everything and then we can't sustain a clinic. So trying to find that balance of doing just good, honest business enough to bring in the revenue that's appropriate and needed to keep things going and grow in the ways that we can help the most people. My question, you know, to an idol, a business idol, along those lines might be, you know, how, how do I rectify those two things and how do I separate the business aspect and, and not take things, I guess, personally, if someone wishes we were doing something a different way, because everybody has different opinions about, you know, how they wish anybody would run their business. And, and we want to help everyone. We want to make it easy for everyone. 
And I have to accept that it's not possible, you know, to make everyone completely satisfied in a business. We have to have processes. We have to have policies. We have to do things in order to keep the business running smoothly. And that means we can't make exceptions for everyone. We can't bend over backwards for everyone all the time. And, and that's where I have trouble. So that would be my question to a business idol is how do you handle that and, and rectify those two situations? What was your biggest aha moment? My biggest, I mean, we have aha moments all the time. It's funny you mentioned aha moments because that's <laughs> was a small fraction of what, why we picked our name Algenuity Health Associates because it's an aha, Algenuity Health Associates aha moments the acronym and the acronym. And that's something that we some want to use, yeah. use with that acronym. But my aha moment in particular for this clinic in general was a really long time ago before I knew anything about allergies really was hearing Nikila talk about all the things that she was dealing with in fellowship. And then when we went to lacrosse for her private practice clinic, hearing about sublingual immunotherapy and the massive hole that is in the allergy field as far as treatments are concerned and how much this one helps fill that hole so much more for many people and why that wasn't an option or even talked about as an option and it's still not talked about really on a level playing field. The other treatment options, that was my aha moment way back when. So when this opportunity arose to potentially start a clinic, I was like, it, it, like there was... Like I already had made a determination based on Nikila and then this treatment option that this was a viable option and a smart decision to do something because it was a big gap in the allergy field. So that was my kind of aha moment a long time ago. Yeah, mine was similar. One of them was just, you know, listening to patients and, and having a moment of being like, what are they actually looking for? What can we actually do to help? And realizing that, that there was this tool that could be developed with sublingual immunotherapy and it just wasn't being looked at. But a different one that relates to our clinic is, I guess when I was at my previous clinic doing sublingual immunotherapy and they had been doing it a certain way successfully for a long time, but I was asking questions, I was curious about things, I had ideas, I was asking questions, I was you know, looking into processes, doing math, just trying to figure some stuff out, seeing what was happening with patients and wanting to optimize it further. And I realized at some point that I was, you know, it wasn't that I was there learning anymore. I, I had learned a lot of really good things and now I was innovating and I was taking things to a, a new level. And I had always felt like a student, you know, I'd been a student for so long with all the schooling and the training. And then now I had chosen to learn yet another new thing after my traditional training. So still kind of a student, even though I was working. But then I realized at some point I became kind of on the other side of that. Now I was able to be an educator. I had, I had surpassed being a student. I had started to be able to take those tools and advance them and bring them to a new level and could help people in additional ways and broaden the scope of this treatment and bring it to a new place. And that was sort of an aha moment for us in that, you know, we had joked about opening a clinic someday, but we, we both kind of always felt inferior, felt like that's not something we could do. You know, we're just two people trying to figure out life and get through life. And, and, you know, we had this moment where we're like, wait, maybe we can do this. You know, we're, we're, I had gained the skills and now I was advancing them so that I didn't need to be under someone's tutelage 
necessarily, you know, I could, I could do this, the science part myself and James could um, bring all of his skills to the table and his other perspectives and the business side of things. And we could blend our skills and now do this. So that was sort of two moments that led us to where we are. Yep. What drives you to keep going when it's really tough? Patience. Yeah. I would say that, I mean, we both our have belief a, in what we do. Yeah, our belief in what we do. We feel very confident in the path that we've chosen. We know that it's something that is very helpful for people. And then we see it with the, the people that we help and how it's changing their lives, their quality of life families, quality of life, and then just the community aspect of it. We get to know everybody on almost a familial basis, you know, where we've, we get invited, <laughs> we to, get invited to stay at their house. We've gone out to dinner with patients. Mm-hmm. We've done some other things, you know, and it's just cool to, to see that there's not just a service relationship. It is more than that. It is actually getting to know us, getting to know why we're doing what we're doing, and then getting to know patients as well. And, you know, their inner thoughts on what their fears are, what their goals are, what their aspirations are for, you know, outside of even the allergy field, all of that makes it really easy to keep going and try and figure some of the stuff out. Yeah. And our, it's always nice on our worst days, on the days that something falls through or something really just a new hurdle presents, which has been often, oddly enough, there's usually a patient who happens to reach out that same day with just such kind words and so much appreciation and with some sort of story or remarks about, you know, something that, you know, they're just so thankful for that we did for them. And it usually comes at the perfect time. It usually comes right when we're ha- we're feeling low. <laughs> something else has kicked us in the butt, you know, another policy or another regulation or more fees <laughs> for things or just really stressful complex situations with colleagues or the allergy field or discussions that we're having with somebody who is skeptical and it gets hard sometimes. And then, you know, we start feeling stressed and kind of frustrated and low. We'll get that message. We get a card or we get a phone call or we get a message in their portal or something or a picture of a, a stuffed little, animal. little boy <laughs> with a dog or a family, a little girl thought of us her vacation and thought to buy buy us a little stuffed animal to say thanks and mail it to us, you know, like that little things like that just really remind us Mm -hmm. and keep us going. What are some safety tips you can give persons in precaution of the coronavirus right now? The, The biggest thing I guess that I talk to patients about with it is just reminding everybody which something they hopefully already know is that we are, we're all individuals, but we can't survive without each other. We're a community. We're small communities, but even bigger than that, you know, we're a world community and this is a pandemic. It's a new type of, or a new subset of a virus. And we don't know a lot about it. And a lot of things are changing rapidly and the best thing we can do and the best precautions we can take are ones that help protect each other in our community. And so we recommend that anyone who can, which is the large, large majority of people, wear a mask. And if the, if the majority of people are wearing masks, it's very clear that the spread of, of this virus becomes less and less, or at least less quick. 
which then allows healthcare workers to stay supported and stay as healthy as possible for as long as possible, keeping everyone safer, anyone who needs medical care anywhere for any condition, whether it be cardiac or you know heart conditions or diabetes or blood pressure or coronavirus related, it just keeps the system working as smooth as possible. So wearing masks when in, in public situations, you know, physically distancing from people as much as possible, yet still being social and, and keeping up good, you know, relationships and habits, seeing family and friends via video, seeing them outside, you know, playing thing games like tennis or other games that you can still have some, some distance between, but you can still engage riding bikes together, stuff like that is sort of what we, what we advise. So at our clinic, we've instituted policies that keep people safe where we bring in just, I think James mentioned, just one family at a time right now. And then we clean the place afterwards and let it sit for a while. And then we bring in another family. But I think those are the main safety tips that everybody, you know, should know about and should try to take to heart is that we have to do this together. And the data is kind of all, I'm not a doctor, obviously, and I see the data is kind of all over the place. There's no consensus really on anything, even in the medical community. So at the very least, we can understand that we need to work together and the best way we can do that, even if it is not as deadly or as, you know, spreads as quickly as we think or whatever it is that people can justify, you know, going into life ad lib as they've done before is, you know, if you wear a mask, you social distance, you wash your hands you know, that can protect us, even if this is not as deadly or dangerous as we previously thought, like the very least we can think of each other and do the basics. None of those safety measures are that difficult to implement, even for people with some, you know, asthma or breathing problems. The majority of them probably can wear a mask or surgical mask with no issues. Or at least for the time frame or at least, that's needed or at least to for the go time to the for, store yeah. or something. And, and it just keeps our community safer and lets everybody live much more of a life. So then you don't have to be quarantined. You know, you can still go out and do a lot of things uh, that keep life going. So that's kind of the precautions mm-hmm. that we recommend. Now, what are some tips on dealing with children with food allergies? Be um, empathetic. Yeah, a lot, I guess a lot. Are, are, are you asking from the standpoint of like, parents dealing with children with food allergies or school, school teachers, or just um, what would be more likely more? on a parent level? Sure. No, you're not alone. Yeah. Know that as a parent, there is nothing that you did to cause the food allergies. We have not figured out exactly how food allergies come about why one person has certain things versus another person. There is no clear data at this point. And certainly for mothers, there is no, uh, there should be no guilt about what you ate or didn't eat or did or didn't do during pregnancy, as long as you were doing just whatever you could to, to be as healthy as possible and, you know, and, and get through the pregnancy as best as you could. So, um, that's usually the, the biggest thing we always remind parents is you're not alone and there's nothing that's your fault. There's a lot of complex reasons why people develop food allergies, combinations between genetics and environmental factors and just unique things about the person. So, and then in terms of living life with food allergies, there are a lot of ways to live a really good quality of life. Food allergies don't have to be completely crippling. They shouldn't define they, you at all. Yeah, there are ways to get through without it feeling like it defines you. And that's where talking to 
you know, a, a good allergist who can talk you through all your options and be creative for you, you know, can be really important because it's not just that avoidance is the only way. And it's not just that you must consume the food in some sort of treatment like oral immunotherapy. There's a whole host of things that play a role and all sorts of things in between. And, and that's where our treatment that we offer at our clinic comes into play too with, with its versatility for food allergy. So, you know, just getting, learning about things, talking to people who, ha- who can give good advice and trying to find ways to ease any anxieties to a, you know, to a reasonable level. Of course, everyone's going to, you're going to be, if your child is sick with anything, you're going to be worried, of course, and that's normal and natural, but finding ways to live that good quality of life are certainly out there. So that's, that's another thing we would love for parents of kids with food allergies to know. All right. So we're on to the last question. Where can listeners and anybody can find you on social media and online? Well, obviously there's our website, allergenuityhealth.com. You can email us at hello at allergenuityhealth.com, or you can call us if you're inquiring about more questions about what we do and why we do it. And then on social media, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I usually run the handles Mm -hmm. on all of those. So if you're talking to somebody, you're usually talking to me, but can reach out on any one of those platforms and and one of us will get back to you and, and try and help in any way we can. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. I was, I was like really excited for the two of you to come on because I know that a power couple can do so many things and can make so many things happen. And this is an example of a power couple can make it in life and in the workplace. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you for having thank us. We're so, so happy to, to speak with you as well. Yes, this was a pleasure and an honor. And, and we're, we hope this was fun for listeners. It was fun for us. And it was interesting. It was. It was. And this is an example of a health clinic. And this is a unique clinic. I've never heard of an allergy clinic before. So for those of you who have never heard of an allergy clinic before, This is the clinic that you should be hearing about. And trust me when I tell you, these are the two nicest people on earth. So you should get to know them, get to connect with them. Thank you. you. It's been (laughs) such a pleasure talking with you. All right. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for inviting us. Have a great day. Take care of yourself. Yeah. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Allergy Free Hustle Podcast. Now, if you're enjoying listening to the show, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and any of your favorite podcasting app. Now, when you're leaving a review, no need to place your real name when you're leaving a review. Just place a name, leave a five-star rating, and tell me what you think about the show. Now, this will help other allergy-free hustlers just like you to find the show now if you're looking for more content 
You can follow the Allergy Free Hustle podcast on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and now TikTok with the social mention at Allergy Free Hustle podcast. And on Twitter, you can use the honorable mention Allergy Free Hus. Also, please sign up for the newsletter at eepurl.com slash common G5 capital JPWN. When you sign up, you receive new updates when a new podcast episode is published online, what's going on with the podcast, and life lessons that I have learned. That's eepurl.com slash common G5 capital JP common WN. Or take a look at the show notes on your favorite podcasting app.